Good morning. It is good to be together as God's people. What a week it's been. Uh, it's tulip time here in Holland, and um, the weather's been marvelous. But this is our time we set aside to gather as God's people and to give Him praise. The um, call to worship for this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95. As I like to do, I've set it up as a responsive reading. So um, let's begin with that, Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. It begins this way. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, hymn number 19, we'll project it, and you have it in your hymnals, For the Beauty of the Earth, verses 1, 2, and 5. Stand if you're able and join me.
Amen. Have a seat if you would, please. It's always my joy to welcome you as we've uh, gathered here to worship on site and for the opportunity for those of us on site to, by way of uh, live stream and recording, to gather with others, uh, unable to be with us here, but joining in spirit and truth. So it's good for us to be together, and I welcome you. And as I said last week, it's a regular part of what's going on in my heart. Thank you for being the answer to my prayer. Part of what I pray each week is, Father, guide me and bring those who will need what you have for us. So I see each of you as the answer to the prayer through this week. We've gathered with that in mind. God is at work, and that's good news. A little direction for the day. I always laugh. The dance is more fun if you know the steps to the dance. So here's the steps for the day. We're going to do communion. And you'll remember how we do that if you need a single packet because of health reasons or that you want to stay in your seat, uh, find a way to make sure you get that from Christine. We have those. If you'd like to, during communion itself, we'll ask folks to come down the center aisle. Again, they're single packets if you like them, or uh, you can have servers on either side who will have the bread and the cup. Uh, partake, and then you can leave the cup in the receptacle there. Um, we're also uh, inviting parents, feel free to bring children. We're encouraging uh, help navigate that as a family. We can give you resources. So that'll be kind of the steps with what we do with that. Um, because we're having communion on those Sundays, I'm not going to do my typical children's time, which I've started up again, uh, just because of time and focus. And for kids, it'll be that focus with their families. Now, after the service, there will be fellowship time. Uh, coffee and uh, donuts, but I'm not going to do the pastoral follow-up. I usually have about 30 minutes for questions and answers, um, that sort of thing. I love to do that, but I also love to be available. And I missed one of my classes in seminary, you know, the omnipresence class, where I learned to be every place all the time. So on communion Sundays, I'm gonna be available during fellowship time. At other times, I do that small group that everyone's invited to uh, anyhow. So that's kind of our day. Uh, some slides and things for you to be aware of uh, is our Ireland trip. We're at work sending a learn uh, and serve team to Ireland, be with Pastor Luke and Kelsey and their family, September 30 through October 8. Um, applications are coming due. Make sure you get hold of those. And part of our missions thing, um, Keith Baker will be with us next Sunday, a missionary that we've supported for years, Bob and Marianne's son and uh, his family. Uh, so looking forward to that. And then the Connect card. Thank you all for putting that up. If you will type the word Connect, to 616-202-1210. You'll get a link to a form and you can ask to be uh, connected to our weekly newsletter, ask for a pastoral visit, just whatever would be of help. So we're looking for ways to effectively be available to those both on-site and online. Uh, God has called us together as his people. I was reminded talking with some of you this morning that we're in this together. I'll give you the best I got, but the good news of the gospel is that when people come, they get all of us. So make that worthwhile. We're in this together. God's doing good things. I love the Heidelberg Catechism, a great statement of faith from centuries ago that, again, gives us a great vision of what it means to live in light of the whole gospel. The question for this month 
that I've focused on focuses on one of the great hallmarks of the Reformation, the sola fide, by faith alone. And so here's the opening question. I'll give you a chance to respond. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith. It is because only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me righteous before God. And because I can accept this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than through faith. We praise God for that great truth. Hymn number 737, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have a seat if you would. It was a marvelous moment last week at this time when Pastor Florencio uh, came and prayed for us. I'm thankful of that reminder of uh, God's gospel for every tribe and tongue and nation. I also like to sometimes take a moment and, and think about prayer, teach them about prayer. And so I want to do that right now. Um, at the end of our time together, uh, we will pray the Lord's Prayer, and that's right and good. It's good to memorize that, have it close to our hearts. But it's possible to think, okay, the Lord's Prayer, I'll pray it just like it is. And then when I really have need, I'll pray, pray it. I'll pray it two times or three or four times that there's something about those words repeated. A great breakthrough in my own prayer life was when I began to realize that the Lord's Prayer was more of an outline or a framework. And so I would pray, our Father who art in heaven, and then I would meditate, I gathered for years, the scriptures of God, my heavenly Father. So I would meditate on the truth of the Father. I would then pray, um, hallowed be your name. And I would spend time meditating on the holiness of God. What does it mean, hallowed be thy name? A lot in the Bible about the holiness of God, and that began to shape my heart. The third thing we focus on there is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? On earth as it is in heaven. And so I pray, I recognize the lordship of uh, Christ in heaven, and I want to live that out. It gets both things. Here's where that's really shaped my life over the past several weeks. It's probably no secret to a lot of folks that... I've never thought Roe versus Wade was good legal decision. 
It's kind of like the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision from 1857. Great constitution, gosh, that was a mistake. Now, I'm not asking you to agree with me on that, and I'm not gonna take time to give reasons. That's not what this is about, but I, I wanna be transparent about this. Because I'm also gonna say, if Roe gets overturned, like so much excitement these days, that's not a finish line. That's not a victory. It's not as if, oh, the war's over and we've won, pack up and go home. I wanna to suggest to you that we ought better to pray and work as if that just opens up a new season of prayer and work. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not about winning. That's not about me getting what I want or think is important. That's about setting my heart that the kingdom of God might live in me and then live through me. The true and perfect king living in me, the true and perfect kingdom living through me. As I meditate on the scripture and what that true and perfect king and his kingdom could look like, I'm praying and working towards a time where there will be no more rape or conception by rape. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven where there'll be no more extraordinary uh, birth anomalies and the challenge there on earth as it is in heaven, O oh Lord. That there'll be no more men who use a woman for his pleasure, only to abandon her when she carries his child. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See, I think the gospel calls us and empowers us to pray and to work. We've not come to a finish line. We've come to a new starting point of ministry and of care, of entering into lives that are struggling and broken because we are those same folks. Friends, here's the good news from Pastor Bill today. We can chew gum and walk at the same time. We can pray and we can work. That's what we saw last week with Paul. Remember Paul said, I labor with all God's power. We can do both, and we need to continue that. The heavenly Father that I meditate on with our Father, he also says he cares for the widow and the orphan. That's my daddy. That's my rescuer. And because of what Jesus did on the cross for me, and for you, and for all humanity, I'm called to live that out right where we would be. So, friends, our hearts need to be open. Our arms need to be open. Um, living out the kingdom of God on the planet here. So when I'm praying, these are the ways that the Lord's Prayer shapes me and guides me in this way. Let's turn to the Father and pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that even in our brokenness, you are a God of righteousness, peace, and joy, that you have loved us out of mercy, and that love changes us, that as you've given us mercy, you've called us to give others mercy, that as you've forgiven us, you've called us to give others forgiveness, that as you've welcomed us, you've called us to welcome others. Thank you for the power of the gospel to shape and change us. I pray for Heart of White Ministries, Father, that as we gather as your people, three expressions in this one place, that we might be so moved by Jesus, our true and perfect King, 
that we might be so empowered by his true and perfect kingdom that folks might see in us a pointing to something greater than we have on this planet. Be with Pastor Aaron as he preaches at Watershed, brings the word, the team as they worship, for Pastor JB and for the ministry of fusion that will go on. And in a special way, we now pray for Pastor Florencio and for Mission. Thank you, Father, that this kingdom is bigger than us. But in your grace, you have joined us to it. You've called us to be a part of the celebration expression of Harawike. And so, Father, we've gathered this day. And we pray very specifically for those among us, the list is long, who are sick, who are being treated or recovering. And this is a moment where I want to give you time to pray specifically in the silent sanctuary of your heart for those with a need. They're facing health issues, recovery, sickness, diagnosis. Father, hear every heart voice, every prayer for every person. The faces that come to mind, the pressing needs, hear your people. Father, your word says that death is the final enemy and that through what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection, death has been conquered. But until the gospel goes out to every corner, it still will move about the earth. So we gather with those who grieve, wherever they may be in their journey. Take a moment and just lift up the people you know in the journey of grief, having lost someone close. Father, thank you that the message you've given us is of Christ and him crucified and raised, that it's not about me and my supposed ability, but about Jesus. You've called us in humility to pray for those in authority over us and in our cycle. This day we pray for the state of Michigan, that level of government, as you will, in our system. Uh, we pray for Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Dana Nessel, for Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, for those who serve in our State House and State Senate, particularly Mary Whitford and Jim Lilly and Bradley Slay and Roger Victory. We pray, Father, that you would guide their hearts in your hand, that even beyond their knowledge and ability, you might move for the blessing of your people, that peace may rule the land. With that in mind, Father, we pray today is National Peace Officers Memorial Day. And so we remember the brave uh, local, state, and federal peace officers who've died or been disabled in the line of duty. Our hearts grieve to see the violence in the land. We pray you'd bring us to a commitment to the rule of law and that you'd use peace officers, that there'd be no fear of them and no threat to them. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We pray that, Father, from here to the end of the earth, that every tribe and tongue might hear the good news of the gospel that moves our heart. 
Lord, it's been a beautiful week, and we're reminded of Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, and nor are there words whose voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Father, we thank you that as the true and perfect King, Jesus will return and establish the fullness of shalom, wholeness, righteousness, peace, mercy, life, to rule your people and the planet. Thank you for making the world for us to enjoy and to steward We so look forward to dwelling in it forever when it becomes the fullness of a new heaven and new earth at Jesus' return. Father, build our prayer life both together and separately. Hear our prayers as we pray just as the Lord Jesus taught us, saying together, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Well, centuries ago, the Apostle Paul wrote to a gathering of people in the town of Colossae. I'd mentioned earlier that shortly after this letter would have arrived, there was an earthquake that just about left the city uh, uninhabitable, and it was not really built back to its previous glory. So imagine receiving these words before the biggest unplanned crisis of your life. The Word of God often lands in our hearts and lives this day. We're preaching through Colossians, and today we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2, Uh, verses 8 through 23. I want to end with a particular uh, picture, hub and spoke, but let's begin by reading uh, this text. Follow along as I read. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Now in him, and from here you're going to see Paul play out in several concrete expressions what it means to live in him. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. This is the second. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Jesus has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 
And in that way, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to those, remember he talked in the beginning about elemental spiritual forces of this world? Since you've died with Christ to those, why as though they, you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not whatever. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, uh, they have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value at all in restraining sensual in, in, indulgence. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you that even as Paul would write to the church in Colossae, so it was recognized with an anointing and preserved across centuries so that now by your grace in amazing ways we can open the scroll as it were, translate, read, consider. But most of all, we thank you that you've promised to meet us here, that your Holy Spirit will illumine to our hearts and to our minds your call on our lives and the hope that you have for us in the gospel. Be with us this day that we might hear and receive. We thank you for your kindness. Guard us from my brokenness and confusion. But even as one sinner points to Jesus, may each of us see him more clearly this day. Thank you for your kindness and grace. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people sit together. Amen and amen. Well, Paul has a concern for this church, as he would have for almost any church, really. It's this, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive by the pressing things of the world. You see, it's possible to have our minds so consumed with the things of the world that we are carried away by them. It's as if in the pursuit of freedom, we are no longer free. We're subject and slave to the things that hold us. So don't be taken captive, Paul writes in verse 8. Don't be carried away or enslaved. He says that's primarily a kind of hollow and deceptive human philosophy. This another worldview that shapes the way you think and see. Be careful. And he points to two different things that it will be human tradition, and this term, elemental spiritual forces. Now, through the course of this, I've had the four indicators, the physical, the personal, the social, and the spiritual. 
Those things remind us that there's more at work here than just physical things, more at work here than just personal things. Paul speaks to the people, don't be hollow, don't be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. And beware, because they'll play out in two different ways, human tradition and these elemental spiritual forces. So the question becomes then, what do these look like? What are these human traditions and these elemental spiritual forces? Now, it's easy to do the historical study, go back to Paul's time and to his context, and uh, an example of a human tradition that we're all probably familiar, if you're familiar with the Bible, is the legalizing of the Pharisees and all their legalism. They had all the rules to obey, and if you obeyed the rules, you must be good with God. What was sad was that they were busy obeying the rules, and God himself showed up and they missed him. You see how that worked? They were captive to a human tradition. The commandment says, obey the Sabbath and keep it holy. They added about several hundred extra laws about how many steps, about this, about that, about the other. And so they became so committed to human tradition that when Jesus walked among them, they missed him. That's a classic biblical example of being taken captive by a hollow and deceptive philosophy, the hollow and deceptive philosophy of Phariseeism. And there, they would be held by that. The elemental forces, there were all sorts of ways to worship and spiritual experience to have in Paul's time. It's called the Mithras cult, one of them, a worship of a particular experience and a particular spirit that was prominent. These things would grow and express themselves over time, whether human tradition or whether spiritual experience. Paul says, don't be taken captive. That's not the road to freedom. He also has here what I want to spend just a minute on is what I'd call divine ambiguity. Now, this is not God wanting to be confusing or hide things, but it's a way for the Scripture to speak and leave room for the Spirit to speak. David would write in the Psalms in several several places, my enemies gather around me, my enemies work to undo me. And you'll look at the context and you have no idea who the enemies are. That's not because he didn't have specific enemies. It's because in this Psalm, God has left space to refer both to David's enemies and the enemies that we deal with and face. The enemies of my own greed, the enemies of my own self-righteousness. So it, you find in the scripture this kind of space where it speaks clearly, human tradition, elemental spiritual forces, but in terms of specific historic expression, it kind of leaves space. So we have the clear writing of the word, the written word, and we have the opportunity to hear the spirit speak to our hearts and challenge us. This is that kind of divine ambiguity that you'll see in the scripture. Sometimes God will give us a category without the specific historical expression. We would get confused if he gave the historical uh, expression. For instance, 
Paul doesn't write a lot against the Pharisees. That's because that Pharisee perspective, being righteous by obeying the law, will continue in all different kind of forms. We've lived those, haven't we? You bet we have. Different churches, different denominations all have their different law, but they'll keep offering you a human tradition that says, do this, don't do that, and you're okay. Paul wants us to be warned of that category, legalism, human tradition, and to recognize the expression in our time and what that means. So there's that human tradition, and I already talked with you about the Pharisee. That was before Paul's time. He was living out of that in his own life. Afterward, the whole Roman expression of paterfamilias and that focus on the family that lifted up a particular vision of family for how to live and what to do and how to maintain the country took on a life of its own. And eventually, to stand for Christ would put you against the Roman vision of the world. It was a human tradition that would press you. These elemental forces, again, a reality that's more than just personal or social, but a spiritual force with power. The Mithras cult that was a worship. To follow Paul would come the Gnosticism, the idea of there's a secret tradition. And if you just know this secret, then you're not just spiritual, but you're really spiritual. We see it play out in our own day and time. Folks will say, oh, I'm a believer, but I'm this kind of believer. I've got a particular spiritual experience or credibility or whatever that lifts me up. There's an elemental force to desire to make something of myself. I hear it. Sometimes folks will tell me, well, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I've got the secret insight, the, the something that sets me apart. Beware of those things. That becomes actually the very interesting question. What would it look like in our time? What is the human tradition that presses in, that shapes us? This is where you need to pray. Frankly, I think the, the categories in Scripture point us in a direction, but we're not going to be able to understand them until we're also intimate with God to hear the voice of the Spirit to say, this is the human tradition that's pressing in on you. Doesn't matter if you can figure out my human tradition that's holding me captive. The Spirit wants you to identify yours and be free. So what is the human tradition of our moment? Let me just make a suggestion uh, to consider. Again, I think it's what the Spirit will speak don't have to agree with me, don't have to, um, it could be the start of a great conversation. The human tradition pressing us in our own time is the idea of Christendom. When a culture establishes our faith, oh, well, we do this, we do that, and the other, and the culture then calls us to conform to it. Well, that's all right if the culture is vaguely Christian. But what about when you've been trained in conformity and then the culture changes? You're conforming to things apart from Christ. See, it's very, very easy. I grew up in the South in the Bible Belt. I'm very aware of having a, a culture that calls you to conformity, that has scripture verses in reference to it, 
but it's different than Christ. We're called to be disciples of Jesus, not conformed to a culture. That becomes the pressing human tradition. How about for us that elemental spiritual force? What guides and presses us even deeper than our ability to rationally analyze? Here's my suggestion. Again, you need to pray these things through. But I think there's a consumerism that is built off of a lie deep within our hearts, that voice that says, you can be a little happier if only you had Fill in the blank. Ford wants me to make sure it's one of their cars. Budweiser wants me to make sure it's their beer. But all of them have this press, you won't be happy. You won't be fully human without that. Have you ever been back to the house that you grew up in? How different is it than the house you're in now? Many of us grew up sharing bedrooms with a sister or a brother or multiples even. But now, you see, there's this press to have and to spend to, to find our identity in those things. So be aware, friends, there's hollow and deceptive philosophy that says, oh, you can be happy only if. What Paul is writing to the church in Colossians is that that's a hollow and deceptive philosophy, worldview, whether it's built on human tradition or elemental spiritual forces, it will never bring you joy or completeness. Here's part of our message to the, God, to the world around us. It's not only the good news that Jesus died to give us hope and joy and fulfillment, but that there are other things that the world is offering that cannot give you hope and joy and fulfillment. The world needs to hear from us that there are things that work and things that don't. And they need to see in us that we too are leaving behind those things that don't work, that we might pursue the things that do. I remember a high school student in a previous church had an opportunity to go to Africa and tour a number of mission stations, see what they were doing, be a part of the medical work there. He brought with them uninflated soccer balls and gave these kids soccer. They'd play soccer with kids all day long and then work with the different mission teams. And he came back to our city and he said, you know, those kids were happier even though they had less. We're living in a time when depression and anxiety among all ages, but particularly among teens, 20-somethings is just through the roof. We, we had a problem, COVID multiplied it. What is that telling us about pursuing hollow and deceptive philosophy based on human tradition if you're conforming, based on self-expression if you're pursuing? Instead, the gospel calls us to find fullness and hope where it only is in Christ. I love Paul's answer. He writes very clearly here that... It's a for and an and that we have. For all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ. And as a result, you have been brought to fullness. Friends, there's good news. What we meet in Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form.
Jesus is more than just a prophet, more than just a teacher, more than just an inspiring historical figure. This is what God would look like if he took on bodily form, because that's what Jesus said he was. There is the fullness. Look anywhere else, and you might find some of God's expression in bodily form, but you won't find the fullness. The fullness of God in bodily form, in Christ. That's what we meet in Jesus. And when we come to faith in Christ, that's what we receive. You have been brought to fullness. Friends, you will never be able to earn enough money to enter into the fullness of human life. Your marriage will never be so good that it's the fullness of human life. You've heard me laugh. I say this from time to time. Mary Lynn has been a great wife, but she's a shortcoming when it comes to a God. Good wife, but she doesn't give me the fullness of life. That's a gift of God through grace in Christ that I can bring to her. She receives that from Christ and brings that to me. This is a whole different way of living. She doesn't stand or fall on my perfection or, shall we say, lack of it. Having the fullness in Christ, we have that to live out of. This is Paul's answer. It's in one sense very simple, but in another sense, it's deep and profound that in this historical figure, Jesus is the fullness of God. No beautiful sunrise, no fulfilling job, no amazing accomplishment will be as full of God as Jesus. In Christ, then, I have a fullness that I could never earn or produce or have. Paul's answer, one of the reasons he can just talk about categories and not specific expressions, the reason there's that divine ambiguity is because Paul's answer would go something like this. Learn to know your rescuer better than your threat. Have you ever heard the story? It's kind of an overused sermon illustration among, from guys like me about the secret service that when they train people to understand what counterfeit money is, they don't show you every kind of counterfeit. They show you the real thing. You learn the real thing. And then you can discern the counterfeits. This is what Paul is saying in a sense here. Learn to know your rescuer better than your threat. The fullness of God in Christ. That in Christ you have fullness of life. Learn to know your rescuer better than your threat. And you'll see what threatens you differently. You know, there are some things to be real nervous about in our uh, moment in history. I could talk on and on about that, but I want to make sure that you know the hope that we are called to. For all the challenges and the ambiguous decisions and the heartbreak we face, there is coming a time, and we live into that truth, where death and brokenness, sin and its consequences will be no more, and I live today in that light. I have in Jesus the fullness of deity in bodily form. In him, I have fullness of life. 
right now across the globe, there are people in my line of work who are imprisoned, but they have fullness of life because they have Christ. That's where Paul points us. He says, know your rescuer better than your threat and you will see what threatens you differently. I would pray that in this challenging season, the church of Jesus Christ might be a light into darkness of hope, of mercy, of sharing. We moved to Western North Carolina in December of 2000, or of 1,999. Do you remember 1999 in December in 1999? Do you remember how the world was going to end? Y2K. And I was so fascinated because both here in Michigan where we left and Western North Carolina where we were, folks were gathering up their ammo and their canned food and they were ready. And I remember thinking, that just sounds like Jesus to me. Get your machine gun, kill the hungry people, protect your food, me first. Friends, in these moments, the people of God live by the grace of God in a dark and broken world. That's where God is calling us to. Know your rescuer better than your threat and you will see what threatens you very differently. That's why the closing picture for me today is a hub and spokes. With Christ at the hub of our life, the other aspects of life, the spokes of marriage, of family, of business, of medicine and research, all these folks find a, all these things and these spokes find a particular focus and balance. I, I looked on the internet, I couldn't really find a good picture of it, but I have a vision in my memory as a kid of going to the circus and there was this one clown who rode a bicycle and the bicycle had two wheels obviously, but this clown had been able to move the hubs to the edge. And so, it would do like riding a bicycle with hubs that were out of center. That's what life is like when you set at the center your business, your relationships. When an identity is something other than Christ, your sexual preferences, one of the offerings we have in our day and time, you set those things at the center of your life and the hub will be off center. Set those things at the center of your life and the wheel will up and down and come and go and the ride will be uncomfortable and broken. Paul calls us to remember that what we have in Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form. And in him, we have fullness of life living out of those things as God sends us into business, into family, into community, into politics, into medicine and research. Those things find their place, find their balance and bear fruit to the glory of God. Don't be held captive, but be set free to be all you were made to be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us. And thank you that in our confusion and brokenness, you have rescued us, you have filled us with a joy that is not ours, but that by your grace is your life in us. We thank you for the marvelous kindness that you've shown us in Christ 
and for the hope you've given us, not simply for ourselves, but for the world. Fill us with that joy and make us instruments. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. I'd like to begin our time at the table with another um, reference to the Heidelberg Catechism, the meaning of the Lord's Supper for believers. It's from Heidelberg Catechism question 80, and I've kind of edited and summarized it in this way. As we gather at this table, let us confess together. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. We worship the risen Christ, but that same risen Christ has given to us this moment where he will meet us. We take a, a physical thing, the bread and the cup, but because of his presence in the reality of the spirit, remember the four aspects of reality. We're here in the physical and the personal. He is present and real in the spiritual. He calls us. From the night in which Christ was betrayed, Paul writes, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So then, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, we've had several conversations about this. What does it mean to come appropriately? What does it mean to examine ourselves? This is the great feast that none of us deserves. That's what it means. It means we come here at the invitation of Jesus. We eat and drink because of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's our declaration to the world that we could not live our lives on our own, but we live by grace in trust of a savior. To come here inappropriately would be to come trusting in what you've performed for yourself. Don't miss that. We come here and declare to the world our need for a savior. Self-reflection is about recognizing those places, that, that time when I respond to Mary Lynn out of my own want rather than out of her benefit, that time when I'm short-tempered because I think I deserve more than I've got. Whatever it may be, the gospel calls us in to a posture of receiving more than we could ever ask ourselves. And so Jesus will say, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation is not something extended to people based on their performance. 
It's something extended to people based on the invitation of Jesus in his terms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. And we thank you for the reality of the spirit that now in this moment, you take these physical things, this, this bread and this cup, and by the promise of your word and the presence of your spirit, you meet us here. You'll speak words of encouragement and love. You'll speak words teaching and convicting, but you'll never condemn us because Jesus has taken our judgment, our sin, our brokenness. He's taken that upon himself that we with open hands might receive more than we could ever ask or imagine. We receive the fullness of hope and joy in Christ. Thank you for your written word and for the marvelous hope that you've given us. These things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. I'm gonna ask that those who are gonna be serving this morning, if they would come forward and we get uh, settled with this. Good, thank you. And again, in just a moment, we'll ask folks to come down the um, center aisle, break off and partake. Uh, first, the bread, and we'll try to say to you, the body of Christ broken for you and your response and for you. And then those with the cup, um, the blood of Christ shed for you. And so we'll just come down like this. This is the table of Christ. Come and receive his grace.
uh, think about what I had just received and to watch the people of God come forward and receive as well. The, the word that was deep on my heart, the voice of the Spirit, I sensed was mercy. Mercy. Imagine a mercy that's wider than you can imagine. In a real way, I just received more mercy than I knew I needed. And that one day, apparently, I will come to know how much I needed what I received here this day, that God is at work in our lives in ways beyond our ability to comprehend, to prepare us for something we don't deserve and can't imagine. Isn't that glorious? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, minister deep to the lives of your people gathered here in the sound of my voice. Thank you for that word mercy. Thank you that it covers by the grace of Jesus all that we've done and all that we've not done that we should have. That it covers our inadequacy and that it covers even what we think is our adequacy because it covers it with the glory of Jesus. I pray that you would help your people be found in Christ, the fullness of your grace, and that what might be known of your work here would be a work of mercy. Help us to welcome people into that life-changing mercy. Thank you that there is no shortage of that, that it's not like more people will mean less for us. Move in power, the fullness of your mercy. For you have loved us in Christ, and that's our hope and joy. Thank you for this table, for your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hymn number 363. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. I stand and let's sing together. He's mine because of what he did. He gave himself to me. Let's stand and give him glory.
received this benediction, this blessing from God, first spoken from the lips of Aaron, the brother of Moses and the great high priest, spoken over God's people across centuries. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen and amen. Amen.